Hi there. My name is Ari Satok, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Once Upon a Conversation. I'm an author and an educator living in New York City, and I've recently embarked on a journey to have conversations with a hundred interesting people about their lives and their ideas and share those interviews with my listeners. The aim is simple. People are full of wisdom, and so my goal in these interviews is to tease that wisdom out to then share it with others, since wisdom can inspire us, open our hearts, change the way we see the world or ourselves. I'm extremely lucky to have amazing people joining me in these 100 conversations, and I'm excited today to be interviewing Kyle Berlin. I'm not going to put too many labels onto Kyle other than to say that among other things, Kyle is an artist and has been involved in theater work that I find really interesting. And in introducing Kyle, I wanted to say that I first encountered Kyle not in person, but when I was watching the valedictorian speech he gave at Princeton University four years after I graduated, and was finding myself totally mind blown by the way he ended the speech, in which he posed the following question to his class. What if we gave up greatness for quiet compassion? What if we were number one, not in excellence, but in compassionate listening or repeated forgiveness or radical love? I do not have a prescription to make this happen, only an imagination. I have a feeling this may be the way towards the richest sort of joy, a shared joy. I connected with Kyle after encountering his speech, and I feel lucky now to call him my friend. Uh, We've had some wonderful conversations on these kinds of themes of what we should put at the center of our lives. And so I'm deeply grateful to have the chance to chat with Kyle today through this podcast. So Kyle, welcome. Thank you so much. It, uh, it's yeah, great to talk to you like this. I want to I begin. I begin every interview. Um, the theme of this project is thinking about the things that matter most to us. And I always start on the theme of the things we love the most. Mm. And so my first question is this. What are some of the things in this world that you love the most? Wow, that's a that's a great question. Thank you, thank you for that and for the introduction and for uh, yeah the opportunity to think about that. I mean, let me think. I it's it's interesting because I mean I have these kind of immediately gut gut answers that come to mind when you say that, and maybe those are the right ones. But those you know I I think like sunsets. I think ice cream. I think um, talk, conversations with people that I love. I think surprise conversation with strangers uh, in a park that I had no idea were going to happen. I think surprises. I think uh, games with with people that I know and people that I don't know. I think um, a really good book on a quiet afternoon. I think a really loud dance party on a Tuesday night. Um, I mean, I, all these, these are just the things that jump to mind. I guess if I, if I had to boil it down, it would just be these opportunities for kind of joyful togetherness or and or reflective, um, reflective kind of beautiful uh, moments of, of presence, which is where I think some of those are as well. And we'll, we'll come back around to a number of these themes, but I wonder just in, in the past month, um, is there a moment that stands out to you as a moment of joyful connection that you've experienced? Mm. Mm. It's just a good, I've been, I've been touring around with, um, with, as you know, with this bread and puppet theater company, which is this old radical political puppet theater doing a, a tour across the country for, for three and a half months. And so I was, I've been, been with them 
doing that since August. And uh, so, and every day we're performing in a new city, or a new crowd of people. And so um, there's just lots of opportunities for this type of engagement. And also within the company, you know, there's 20, there are 25 of us and we're spending 24 seven together. So you really get to know people and it's, it's tiring and, and long days and difficult, but also um, really joy, joy and playfulness is baked into the, the performances and the, the space that's around it. So, and to answer your question specifically, I was thinking one that pops to mind, I don't know if this is, this, you know, it just comes to mind immediately as we were performing in um, Portland, Oregon, about a month ago now, I guess, at Reed College there, which is actually where I first got connected to Bread and Puppet because my best friend went there, saw them, called me up, said, you would love this group. They're do, they do trash art blended with high culture and political critique, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so it felt full circle to go back to Reed and perform there. And there was this in the, cor- in the corner before the show, it was kind of, everyone was kind of having a rough day. It was just we were tired and things weren't going exactly right. And in the corner, my friend Hilal, who's from, from Turkey, was wearing uh, her black and white clown outfit, which she made for herself and had decided to don for that day. And she was smashing garlic with a mortar and pestle for the aioli, which we serve on the bread after every puppet show. And I just have this image of her in her clown costume, looking kind of sad in the corner, smashing garlic. Um, and it's, it's, it's just so, I, I just sort of stood there and was watching her in that image. And then another person came and joined me and then another person came and we all ended up kind of, a bunch of us started just watching Hilal smash the garlic in the corner, the sad clown smashing the garlic. And we started laughing. Um, it became this really kind of glorious, joyful moment born of a kind of strange melancholy um and i was in that moment i just felt like it combined the things um some of the things that i just feel the most strongly the way that that joy and and sadness just walk so closely and can flip so quickly on a dime like that and then and then the end of the story is halal composed this beautiful song i can't sing it exactly but it, it, it goes you can't be you can't be sad no you can't be happy if you're always sad you can't be sad if you're always happy. You can't be happy if you're always happy. You can't be sad if you're always sad. And anyway, that came from that moment. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what it, I thought of. Yeah, it certainly does. Uh, and I love that song that I assume she put a tune to. Um, she did. I would fake it, but I. You, maybe you can get her on here next. She would be great. Yeah. Um, and I want to actually zoom out for a second on this particular topic because it, it's so interesting. Um, the topic of theater, but we'll, we'll start on this Bread and Puppets theater that you mentioned. I imagine a lot of people who will be listening to this podcast will never have heard of Bread and Puppets theater. So I wonder if you could just tell them what, what is the origin of this particular company? Like, where did this idea come from? Yeah, so Bread and Puppets started in the 60s, by was started by Peter Schumann and and Elke Schumann, who um, no, Peter came over from what's now Poland during um, before, like during the Second World War, had this whole kind of history in, starting in the East Village as a kind of radical political protest theater in the streets of New York against rent hikes and other things going on in the, in the 60s in New York. And then ended up moving the company to Vermont in the 70s. And it's been there. It's been based in rural Vermont since the 70s. And they make essentially they make giant 
paper mache puppets out of cardboard and paint and you know um and then with these huge puppets they make puppet shows that respond to the big social and political issues of the moment so there's a lot about migration and climate change and um you know anti-imperialism and it's it's sort of it's rooted in in this kind of um yeah um leftist anti anti-imperialist um questioning capitalism these types of questions um but the real and but you know the the shows themselves are always served with bread after and peter schumann the founder says that the puppets were just an excuse to get to serve people free bread um and the name itself is which i really like the last thing i'll say about that is it's a riff on um bread and roses which is a demand that striking textile factory workers made in lawrence massachusetts in the in the early 20th century demanding not only you know, life and sustenance, bread, but also dignity, roses, uh, art, and and a, a dignified human life. And so, bread and puppet is is a riff on that. And they're still super super active. And yeah, I encourage anybody to to just Google image search some of those puppets. They're pretty haunting. I've I've seen one show that you were in, and they really are fascinating. Um, and I love knowing the origin of where the name uh, of the company comes from. Um, I want to sort of situate you in this in this kind of world of have you always been interested in theater it's a good question uh i mean i well, a couple i was home you know a little while ago and my mom was showing me old family videos and uh, when i was six or seven and pretending to be the the mc of a big circus and um doing all these highly theatrical things i thought oh wow maybe i've been maybe i've been a theater person or a performer for much longer than I thought. I I mean, throughout early school, middle school and high school, I sort of did a little, little bit of theater, but I was never one of these full-on theater kids. I felt I was sort of to the side and just did a little bit here and there. And even in at in college, you know, I um I did some I did theater stuff, but it wasn't like my it wasn't the main thing in, that I did, I would say. Um but I've still I've been really drawn to it and I I found I kind of niche in in documentary theater as well. So I've done a bunch of interview, kind of like you are, a bunch of interview, doing interviews, but then making, instead of books, making live performances from them. Um, that's a whole different avenue that I've kind of gone more into after, since leaving Princeton is that kind of documentary theater route. And I've done that now in Argentina and Brazil and across the US. And, um, and I've found that to be super, rewarding and enriching so I, I don't know if I, I guess it has been kind of a long time coming that I'm theatrical maybe I'm just slow in, in recognizing it in noticing um uh, and and on that piece about documentary theater when when did you first get interested in that I mean you just described this idea of interviewing people and, and using those interviews to um create works of theater I, I don't know what else fits underneath the the definition of of documentary theater but I'm I'm curious, as I said, when when you first got interested, and if there's other things you want someone listening to understand about what documentary theater can be or mm. is. Mm. Yeah, it's such a wide umbrella term. I mean, and there's lots of different practitioners and traditions that sort of could fit under that umbrella. Um, so, I mean, for listeners, one perhaps the most well known or one of the most well known practitioners in the U.S. is this 
Hannah Devere Smith, who's this really wonderful performer and and writer. She was a little famous because she was on The West Wing, but she does. She's now really well known for doing these documentary theater performances where she'll interview people about a particularly um, charged topic. For example, the school to prison pipeline or the Rodney King riots in L.A. in the '90s. Um, really, and then and then she will uh, recreate the interview. She'll perform as the people that she interviewed, and because she's this amazing, amazingly gifted actress, she she does this really effectively. Um, and so I recommend people just look up her work. Um, the what I've done is is very different from that. It still uses interviews, but um, generally a sort of practice that I've, um, developed along with some of my, you know, collaborators is, is where we, we interview people, um, and then rather than trying to kind of imitate those people or, or recreate the interview live, we will transcribe all the interviews, mix all the voices together, and then create these scenes drawn from different interviews where people staging conversations between people who never actually spoke to each other and kind of creating this almost Greek chorus type effect where the actual identity of who spoke those words is um, less important than the relationship to the, to the other words within that scene. Um, and so it's sort of all anon, anonymized, like the, any, any identifying things are kind of stripped from, um, from the, from the speech, from the words. So then it's just about the, the ideas or the feelings contained within. Uh, to answer your question about when I got started with this, I would guess probably most directly I was a, um, a junior at, at my third year at Princeton and I got this Davis Project for Peace grant to do, uh, to do a documentary theater project in my hometown of Arroyo Grande, California. This is right after the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And there's sort of, there had been this um, race related hate crime in my hometown. And it sort of felt like in the US at that time, so much was about um, who we could imagine the country to be home for and who not, and the drawing of borders and exclusions and who was welcome and who was not. Um, and we wanted to sort of interrogate those questions in our own home. So me and some of my friends and collaborators from here in Oro Grande uh, made a show called Nice Town, Normal People, which is the unofficial motto of our town, investigating these questions, drawing on a bunch of interviews, and then putting live music, original live music to it, doing having discussion elements built in. And then we've, since it was a real success here, I would say, we've done it, we've revived it a couple of years later here, and then we've toured it around the country, different places, and done similar type projects now in different communities across across the US. So that's just a tiny bit about the documentary theater thing. Yeah. And what, what was your experience? I'm so fascinated, first of all, by the interview component. And I actually through this project, I'm talking to different people whose work touches on interviews. Um, yesterday, I talked to a community organizer, and we ended up talking a little bit about interviewing um, and just like one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. Um, and so I, I want to ask first, like what was your experience like going to talk to all these people? Did you have really specific questions that you were going to ask? Were they more informal, the conversations? Um, what was it like? Um, yeah, I love, I love interviewing. And it's fun to talk to someone like yourself who also loves interviewing. It's in a basic way, I, 
it's sort of how I approach most of my conversations. Not that I feel like, oh, I'm the interviewer and you're the interviewee, but that that having question, asking people questions is the one of the life forces of creating a shared world and a relationship. And sometimes I get alarmed that I think the basic curiosity and asking other people questions is falling away a little bit in in their larger culture. Um, I don't know, maybe I don't want to be alarmist about that, but I've been just been, I feel I've been noticing it more that people just seem to ask less questions of each other. And I think that's a, that's a shame because there's, it's astounding how much people contain within them. If you just sort of, you know, ask the right questions and they will un, more often than not unfurl these, these amazing things and totally turn any kind of re preconceptions about them or who they are on their on their head and reveal these surprising depths and i i mean it's central to my ethos that i think everyone has that everyone is just contains an incredibly rich inner life that um the right questions and the right amount of um relational trust will will unfurl so anyway sorry that i got a little on a tangent the interview interviewing um uh i i, I like Personally, I like to have a few questions that I, you know, know I'm curious about for a certain person if it's a more formal setting. But I also like being super responsive and having it be more conversational and following the the flow of of the conversation as it's going. Um, and I like if people are comfortable. I I like audio recording generally over video recording because I find that people are um, get less nervous uh with the audio recording than they do with the with a video recording you know i think you're right on that um i'm curious in the in the context of that particular interview project that became the theater project were there any moments or any interviews that you did in which the interviewee ended up being brought to tears in mm. some way that it just it made the person you were with cry hmm yeah, I can think. I can think of a couple. Um, there's. I can think of my actually one of the my favorite interviews that we did that provided so much wonderful material for the show and was just so personally affecting. Was with actually my high school history teacher, uh, Mr. Jim Gregory, who just at my large local public high school here in Arroyo Grande was an amazing teacher. And then we interviewed him for this project because he lives in Oro Grande and knows so much about the area. And um, he he got choked up a, a couple times just talking about um, about what what it meant to to be from this place and the the incredible history of of um, immigration in particular. The really mixed um, the different people from different countries who have come to make this place what it is. And and how poorly so many of them have been treated at different points in history. So um, I can remember he was talking about um, Japanese farmers um, who are there's a number of large Japanese families in the area who during the 40s were had their farms taken from them and were put in internment camps, um, and. And then, and then, how they were after after the war, um, you know, brought back in 
back into the community, but the, that damage that had been done could could never be be undone. And they were such pillars that had been so mistreated. The, so he got super moved on talking about that. Um, and then the and then the other moment, which I actually still have in my head. Um, do you want? I can do it for you. Do you want? It's yeah. like it's thirty seconds. Do you want yeah. to hear it? Yeah, I love that. It's this, it's this quote that he has that really moves me too. And he got he got moved when he said it the first time. Let's see if I can do it. It's been a while. He, he goes. There is a constant refusal in me, even at the age of sixty-five, to be jaded or cynical. I think when we reach back in our history and learn about the common stories of everyday people, normal people, and learn about the place that we're from and its connection to this larger history that we are all a part of, that we are all a part of, this history that for all its horrors still has people like that who just live fabulously unselfish lives. Well, that, that reaffirms my faith in my country. And yeah, he got that, 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 that quote. I, f- I feel goosebumpy just hearing it. <laughs> um, wow. I, it's taking me right to, for whatever reason it's taking me, I, I may have, have told you about this. There's an amazing, uh, production that happens in New York called the people's history of the United States. They, they take Howard Zinn's sort of inspired by his book, but towards the end of his life, he worked with someone else and they have all of these, uh, verbatim, I mean, speeches, speeches and songs, and they get performed by different people who read these, these texts. Um, mm. and I, I just remember having a similar goosebumpy feeling at a couple of these speeches and songs that in the, in the same way, share that idea of just like, that despite, I mean, the line that despite all the horrors that are that are contained in the history of just these people who somehow push us forward or live fa- fabulous lives or un- you know selfish unselfish lives, um, and so I'm, I'm moved just hearing that quote. And they're not and they're not famous and they're not well known and they're not prideful. It's just this sort of super quiet, modest, and good good lives and good people who. Are, that I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's it's just very very moving, and and I think it's this it's this. I think about this often because it's this kind of um, I think oh, we need to like celebrate these people. Uh, you know, they deserve to be in the spotlight and and famous and celebrated. But that's I mean, that's not the point. It's not that sort of defeats the the whole notion. It's not because you know it's like celebrity culture is just so. Uh, dehumanizing and stultifying and depressing basically I think why are these people famous like there's these people who are so much better and more interesting Um, but I think that's just anyway there's no that's not the answer is not oh we need to make Jim Gregory my history teacher famous it's just remembering that there are people everywhere who who are good and and deeply humane yeah um, and we, we may loop back to it later in the interview too. There's a project called the Hidden Chaplains Project um, that's taking place on our um, alma mater university's campus um, that perhaps we'll come around to later, but just about celebrating the everyday people in our communities and in our lives who make a difference. And I agree with your point 
it's not to make them celebrities. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just to remember that expressing gratitude and noticing all those people who make a difference in our lives matters um, and also probably changes the way we treat those people. Um, I, I want to ask um, a couple questions to just continue on this thread of the theater work that you've done. The first is this, your, um, your project was about home, right? Mm -hmm. uh, as you said, the first question that's just jumping out at me, there's, there's so much um, cynicism in America about really any sort of possibility for this place to, to ultimately feel like home for everybody. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I just want to ask at a very simple level, did your project ultimately make you feel more hopeful about the possibilities of America, um, of like an inclusive America? Did it make you feel less hopeful? Um, yeah. Mm. Mm. That's tough. Um, I mean, basically, I think it... I, sorry, this is probably isn't satisfying, but kind of both. It made me more it made me more hopeful in that I was amazed by the um just how open minded some people were in a surprising way and and had energy for wanting to make a a better world and were engaged with these with these questions really actively because I think that that apathy and retreat to our private spheres of existence is one of the big obstacles to to making a, a better shared world. And I was really gratified by how much people were willing to share and come out of their private bubbles to, to interact with both with me and my collaborators, but also with other community members at the performances, at the events, etc. So in that way, I found it really hopeful. I also found it, it, it also evinced just how complex all all of these stories are and complex and interlinked and rooted in history and uh, therefore full of, of, you know, kind of deep momentum that makes it hard to just sort of shift overnight how, how people relate to each other across the fault lines of, of race and gender and class and, you know, all of these, um, and national origin, et cetera, all these kind of identity markers that that tend to um, to separate or make us feel apart from from other people. So in that way, I, I found it. I was just it seemed it made it clear how daunting um, the road is. But I wouldn't say depressing. It didn't depress me ever. Mm, so it didn't depress you, but it at the same time highlighted the immensity of the challenge. Uh, <laughs> yeah, actually, there's one moment. There's there were a couple people who I I had known for a long time who got who didn't engage who were it made me sad. that part there was one moment that depressed me where this kind of mentor of mine um, we sent her a copy of what we'd found some of the or draft script which kind of emphasized some of the negative elements of discrimination or or racism or or not feeling like they belong, that some people had attested to about living in this town. And she couldn't, she basically couldn't handle it. Um, she felt like it disrupt, it burst her perception of what this town could be in all its, or was in all of its goodness for her. And she didn't want to have her world shaken in that way. Um, and so she just kind of retreated 
and and that made me that made me sad but i think it was representative of of an approach that some people take that i think is um maybe easier in the short term but less i don't think will will bear fruit and over over the long run mm. do you remember what opening night of your show felt like oh yeah i mean it was nerve-wracking because you a bunch of people you know we interviewed about 100 people for that show and a bunch of them were at that opening night and it was an intimate space we seated everyone in a circle the stage was in the middle of the circle and we unspooled this this uh ball of yarn over the course of the show creating a kind of increasingly kind of dense interconnection um divisions of the stage but also connections between people and that involved actually handing people the yarn, the ball of yarn at, at moments and that kind of eye to eye contact um, and intimacy of saying their words that nobody else knew were their words, because as I said, it's all anonymized, but they knew it was their words and I knew it was their words because I had made it with my collaborators and to have to share that moment of handing them the ball of yarn, saying their words to their face while they're watching in conjunction with all these other people who had contributed their words. It was just a super nerve wracking, but also thrilling and, and gratifying um, performance. And I, rem- and I remember this, one of my favorite other interviews was with a guy who worked as a essentially a grave digger. He worked in the, in the cemetery for 40 years um, here in Royal Grande. And, and I gave a whole monologue from his perspective about the things that matter in life and what he's learned working in the cemetery that long. And I could see him move to tears in the audience. And and I don't know, to, to be able to... I, I, that's what inspires me most about this type of performance and medium is to, ha- to have him for, in that moment to feel like he was being seen and being seen, seen being seen, but without the pressure of people actually looking at him. So he could see himself being seen through the words that I was sharing that were his words, but it wasn't, he wasn't the kind of guy who wants a spotlight on him. He doesn't want everyone staring at him, but he knew it was him. And so that was, I think it was deeply moving for, for the both of us to to share that. Hmm. I can't, I can't not ask if you remember what, what did the grave digger share as some of the most, I mean, I feel like it's kind of a cliffhanger that some of the most important things about life that someone who spent, <laughs> one would imagine spends every day at some level reflecting on death and reflecting on the fact that this is all temporary. I mean, he's literally a grave digger. Um, yeah. So let, I, me th- do, let me, let th- me, no, sorry, go ahead. Oh no. Even if you don't remember it verbatim, I just wonder if you remember any of the nuggets of like what, what he said and and if it was perhaps what we expect someone to say is the most important or if there's anything surprising i mean he i think he i here i'll, I, I'll give you what i remember let's see he said he said it it doesn't matter about anything you own it only matters about who you are as a person because kind of when you're dead everyone's equal that's something I've learned working four decades at the AG Cemetery. Life's too short. You need to make every moment count. But the thing I'll tell you is when something happens, you don't know whether it's good or bad. My, my daughter, she was, she was 16. She got pregnant. I thought it was terrible. And I, it's been now one of the best things in my life. 
I, I sat her and the dad down and I said, I said, you got a lot of people judging you. You need an advocate. So, so I became their advocate because you need that kind of person in your life. I think that, that's all I remember now. But mm. I, that's, I, I really like that bit about the surprise. You, th- you, know, you just don't know. Sometimes you think something's terrible and it ends up being a blessing or a gift and, and vice, <laughs> vice versa. Um, and so I, I think what time and perspective allows us um, that we can never really understand in, in the moment um, mm. a certain event. Yeah. Um, I, I, I want to ask as well, the, the theme of your show is interrogating or exploring the idea of home. Do you have a working definition for yourself of, of what home is? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I have one for myself. I probably couldn't give you one, but it is an interesting question. Like home is fill in the blank. And I, I wonder if you have one for yourself. Mm. It's a very, yeah, it's a really tough one and very, very fraught for me because I've spent a lot of time asking people that question and really don't know if I can answer it for myself, which is maybe why I keep asking it so much. Hoping it's Maybe it's also why I feel I'm often on the road and traveling. Sometimes I wonder, hmm, am I looking for the place? Am I looking for home? Am I looking for the community? Uh, that will that will feel like that that can that where we that I that can hold me and I can hold them um, because I yeah I basically don't have a fixed home now geographically I'm just sort of on the road for the last many years um, but I I do think of it you know a number of people have offered this definition and I think it's the one that resonates with me the most which is that home is is a feeling um that arises in conjunction between people and place so it's not it's not just a fixed geography or even a fixed group of people like your family it's a it's a relationship between people and place and the feeling in yourself that arises from that from that relationship so i think you know words like safety and love and and uh, comfort and freedom all of these big weighty words i think are also associated with that feeling of home i i can't stop myself from continuing on the train of tough questions um, please <laughs> which which is is there a place that you've been in your life that you've lived in it could be a moment in time as well that felt most like home or a time where let me let me ask it in a different language Mm. a time where you felt most at home Mm. Mm. that's a good that's a good question good question i have maybe this is a roundabout way of answering it but it's i have i've had this theory for a long time for a long time, since high school at least, about this triangle, the triangle, what I call the triangle of of happiness, which is different than the triangle of sadness, which is a recent film, which you haven't seen, you should go check it out. A, a hilarious and tragic send up of the super, super rich um, and comfort as our, as our collective downfall. 
But anyway, triangle of happiness, the idea being that on each corner, there's three points to the triangle, of course. On one corner is people that you love. On another corner is doing something that you love. And on the third corner of the triangle is a place that you love. And I think it's, I think it's really hard to get all three of those points of the triangle to converge in the middle. Like if they could all three converge, if you could be someone you love with people that you love doing something you love, then that's got to be one of the surest paths to to joy. But it's really hard to get all three. I mean, maybe you can be in a place that you love doing something you love, but the people that you love are spread out. They're not all there. Or, you know, maybe you're with people that you love in a place that you love, but the thing that you're doing, your job or how you spend most of your time isn't ideal because you're stuck and for this reason or that reason. So it's hard, really hard to get all three of those together. And I don't think I've ever gotten all three together, frankly. But probably, I don't know if I had to, I, I would say it's been more in, in snippets. I felt, I felt convergences of those things. And if I had to choose a kind of prolonged period of my life, I think probably I would still point to uh, the year that I, I spent living in Peru between high school and going to going to Princeton, um, I spent a year living with a living in Peru in the Sacred Valley outside of Cusco, with a Peruvian family that became my own family that I became extremely close to, and I was um, just totally reworked my relationship to time and to other people, and helped me take the acceleration pedal off life and reorient my values and and forge focus instead of on ambition or success as I had been frankly in in high school um, towards more about relationship and and presence and spirit um, and magic and um, anyway I just felt deeply happy at that that period and I I I carry with it it with me still Hmm. I feel like everything you say just opens up for me so many questions in such a, I feel grateful um, way. And so I, I want to ask, first of all, um, you talked about the triangle of happiness and it's a really interesting framing and it makes me think about things in a, in a new light. Do you feel as you've gotten older that you feel more okay with those three points? Never converging or maybe infrequently converging. We don't have to say never. Is it something that bothers you? Do you feel like you're always trying to kind of game out life in a way that lets the three points converge? Or is it kind of like that's what it is to to have these different facets of our lives that in a perhaps dream scenario would all be there, but but maybe that's that's part of yeah. Life. I, I wonder what how your relationship to that has changed or what it is right now. Hmm. That's a that's a really good question. Thank you. Um uh, yeah, I think I'm more, I think I'm slightly more pragmatic in my ripe old age um, in that I, I, I think it's, it's, yeah, it's very hard to converge those. I think so, but I think it's okay. Um, I'm, I'm both more pragmatic in that I think I recognize that I'm never going to get all of the people that I love with doing everything, doing something I love all the time in a place that I'm in love with. Like that just seems so far-fetched. But I'm less desperate and less concerned about that that needs to happen or that that that's the one sort of route. I'm much more at peace with, um, you know, pieces here and there 
of luminous convergence and and the rest of the time kind of living in the circle around the triangle and moving between points and sometimes I'm with people that I love and sometimes I'm in places that I love and sometimes I'm doing something I love and sometimes none of those um but there's but the the ability to kind of circle circle the triangle somehow gives me a kind of a kind of peace and it doesn't alarm me that those points seem so difficult to converge mm. yeah i feel like it's a to me sounds like it could be the title of a, a book or a music album or a play luminous <laughs> convergence uh, I, I really like that phrase um i want to ask maybe one or two more questions related to theater and then transition over to some other stuff that you've been talking about and i'm, I'm being mindful of our time um my my first uh additional question related to theater but art making more broadly i just would love to hear you speak about a question that might seem obvious but why do you think making art in this moment in time is so important hmm. I don't I don't think it's obvious. It's a it's a fundamental question that I think it, it's you're really lobbying those you're not lobbying, you're throwing those hard ones. Right, I appreciate it. It's uh why do I think it's important in this time? I mean, I've thought yeah, I've been thinking about this so much because of I mean just in yeah, it's something that occupies a large part of my own time and then, you know, bread and puppet theater is 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 intentionally uh, socially and politically engaged art company that's trying to be of the time and in some ways I feel it's really successful in that in other ways I I had you know moments of doubt as to what's the use of this um I mean basically where I'm at now is I I think it's um I think it's difficult and perhaps art shouldn't try art or the humanities or these kind of softer forms shouldn't try to claim to be um to be solving issues that they basically don't have the tools to solve socially or politically but i think they can and should make the case for their own vitality in in their very um in their uselessness or in their inability to solve those issues and in the in the space and time that they afford for reflection for both individually and collectively about um, the moment that we're in and the path ahead and where we've come from. I mean, basically without those, without that space that I think that the arts and the humanities also in a different way can, can forge, I think we're kind of lost and all the technocratic and political and technological solutions to the pressing issues of our time will be totally um, devoid of of the humaneness and thoughtfulness um, that they need to actually be successful on a on a deeper level. And I do get concerned that that um, there's not more of a conversation between the quote unquote problem solvers and the quote unquote artists or or art makers. Um, like there's, I don't know, I don't know what it would look like, but some, some more of a luminous convergence there would be, would be much needed, I think. Yeah. Um, 
The last question I want to ask related to theater before I kind of yank us over to a few other topics in our last 15 minutes, um, is I'm sure people are listening and I know I am too, are probably curious, what are, what are you working on right now? I know you mentioned, uh, Brazil and Argentina. I think you mentioned as well. I knew you're in Brazil. Uh, but, but what are you, uh, what have you been working on? I don't know if you're still working on it. Um, but I think people would just be interested. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I was in Brazil for this most of this year, from the beginning of the year until August. I was doing a project. I started out as a documentary theater project in the Brazilian Amazon on the island of Marajó about the people's relationship to water there. It's this river island where the Amazon River and um, and the Tocantins River finally meet the Atlantic Ocean in the northeast corner of Brazil. A very fascinating and um, culturally and, and environmentally rich place. Um, so my project started out there and then sort of morphed and expanded and changed shape to being more of a writing project that involved that, but also the Brazilian musician and activist Caetano Veloso. I really encourage people to look him up, Caetano Veloso, V-E-L-O-S-O. Really read about him, listen to his music. He, he's really an amazing cultural figure in Brazil and in the world, and I think underappreciated. And then lastly, um, the North American poet Elizabeth Bishop, who lived in Brazil for several decades, fell in love with a Brazilian woman down there after she got an allergy from a cashew nut and had to stay in Brazil. She ended up falling in love with the woman who was taking care of her, and they built a house together on the outskirts of Rio, which I ended up getting connected with the current owner, who's a documentary filmmaker, who's making a film about the woman's relationship and the house, which is one of the most famous out of architectural projects in Brazil. It's really astounding place. Um, anyway, so I'm trying to loop together all of this, these vastly different threads, Caetano Veloso, Elizabeth Bishop, Marjo, and my own experience in Brazil into a written project. Um, I'm trying to finish that by the end of the year. Uh, and to, I don't know exactly what form it will take, but that's what I'm presently shifting my attention to work on at now that I'm sort of um, done touring with the puppets, which is what I've been doing for the last couple of months. Very cool. And I'm excited to, to see what it evolves into. Um, as I Me mentioned, we don't have, yeah. <laughs> as, as I mentioned, we don't have that much more time, but I, I want to shift over to two topics that I'm sure we could spend hours talking about, but just to get a little bit into them, into the, in the context of this interview. Um, and the two topics are presence and ambition, um, mm. because I think they're both important. Um, and I'll start with the second one. I'll start with the second one. We, you mentioned once or twice in the interview this theme of ambition. Um, mm. And the, the first question I want to ask um, is, how do you think about ambition now, uh, I suppose, four plus years out of college differently than you thought about ambition when you were an undergraduate student in college and then also different than when you were a senior in high school because hopefully we'll have some seniors in high school who listen to this some people in college who listen to this and some adults who are constantly you know reevaluating their own relationship to ambition and and how it should fit into a life well lived hmm Ooh, yeah, it's a, another really good question and one I have been thinking a fair amount about recently. It's it's funny how these 
topics. I, I appreciate this opportunity. It's funny how that they just sort of emerge at like the right time. I mean, it's, yeah, this has been one of the things that I've, I haven't been constantly thinking about it, but now I've just been thinking about it and now you're asking me about it. So here we go. Uh, that doesn't mean that I have a cogent answer prepared, but <laughs> I, I mean, basically, as I think I mentioned, I, I was super ambitious in high school uh, and a senior in high school, by which I mean, I was like, I really, you know, I want to go to, I, I want to get out of this small two-bit town and go to the most prestigious university I can and do all these things and be successful and et cetera, et cetera. And it sort of seemed like my ticket out, not that it was a terrible place here, but just I, I wanted more and I wanted, I had these kind of big dreams. Um, and then, as I mentioned, I went to Peru and calmed down a lot um, about and realizing, oh, I don't think that that's necessarily going to, is what's going to bring me satisfaction or what matters. And in the end is, you know, ticking boxes of success or achievement or whatnot. Um, and then when I got to, to college, I, I think it, you know, it, within that environment, it amps up a little bit more again, because you're surrounded by people who are high achieving and competitive and driven. And so I w had this kind of strange conversation between my really laid back Peru self, my super high key high school self. And then from that, I think a third kind of middle road self <laughs> appeared where I, you know, wanted to use the energy and talents that I had to to make things happen in the world, good things. And I reckon, I think that that's what ambition can manifest as, you know, you see that you have gifts and everyone has gifts and you can use those for the good, hopefully. Um, and then, but then not getting wrapped up in the kind of benchmarks of, of achievement or of rewards or prizes or money for their own sake. I mean, I think those are just the most obvious traps in the history of humankind that all literature and art has been speaking about for forever, but we still just keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again, uh, as if, you know, they would bring us happiness. So now, now, honestly, I'm less concerned about any of that. So I surprise myself with how little I'm concerned about, um, being, you know, known or impressive in a, kind of achievement way I, I think my what I focus on now honestly I think it's hard is to be I mean my ambition is to be as good a person as possible in small ways to the people um, in my life and 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 to the and to other people who I don't even know and how to expand that circle of care is is what I'm concerned with I would say now if that's not too pretentious to say no no it's a helpful answer um and the the other theme we were talking about ambition, and as I said, I also wanted to just ask one or two questions about presence, right? And sometimes I think sometimes ambition can be the <laughs> the biggest um, distractor from presence. You know, you're always kind of mm. looking for the next thing or trying to get to a different place as opposed to just be where you are. Um, I also think that like things like this, we our relationship to them are always our relationship to things like ambition is always ongoing. It's always changing. You know, none of these totally. are like solvable. Oh, now we have a healthy relationship and therefore it will be forevermore. <laughs> or now we have a terrible relationship to it and therefore it will be like that forevermore. 
Uh, Same thing with people, relationships with people. Yeah, they're nothing static, right? Nothing static. Everything's dynamic. Um, but my question around presence is what um, helps you come to places of deep presence? What are, what are the things that let you get to places of deep presence? I find that changing scales can really help me. By which I mean, if I'm in a place, either zoom in or zoom out, literally. Like, zoom in really, really close. Anywhere you are, zoom in really, really close to whatever's in front of you. Like right now I have, I'm sitting at this desk, blue desk, and there's, I really, really go close to the finely, the fine um, patterns of the wood grain and the, it's painted blue, but it's not, it's sort of chipped away in parts and there's all these scratches and I can actually see my name written out several times because from the pen indentations over the years um, and the, the texture of, yeah, the wood grain and the direction that it's going. I mean, just that type of, close attention to the material world that's always in front of us, I, I find is a sure path to, to to presence in a weird way. The other way to go is zooming out. Um, and this one's a little harder, I think, because you actually, it's, it requires a bit more uh, imaginative leaping. Like if I, you know, if I'm in a place and I'm like, I really need to be here now say I'm suffering in a grocery store line, very mild, low-key suffering in the grocery store line that's going really slow. And then I, I can picture as if I were zooming out, out of body, I can, you know, I'm staying on the ground, but my, my view is now if I were in an alien in a spaceship looking down on planet Earth, and then there's that particular grocery store, and then there's that line, and there's all those strange rows of shelves with these strange, brightly colored objects. And what is the strange systems that these humans have made for themselves to, I guess, to feed themselves and to the, the line that everyone agrees upon? And what is this little plastic thing that they're giving? And the, the strange paper that they're exchanging for boxes of wrapped goods, etc. And becoming like an alien anthropologist, I find, <laughs> helps me as well. Um, and in a really beautiful kind of way um, to unfurl the kind of astounding reality of things at any moment. Zooming in or zooming out, both of them as different ways into presence. Um, we could talk for so much longer, but I'm going to ask my, my final question. And I'm going to give you two options on this one because this one's real hard. Oh, good. <laughs> uh, but as I said, you've, you've emboldened me through your really generous answers to ask the really hard ones. On my mind right now, partially because of uh, the really beautiful ideas shared by the gravedigger that you brought up and partially this conversation about ambition. Um, so I want to ask you, you got two options. One is this. We're 100, 100 years from now. Right, you and I are both gone, <laughs> um, yeah. but there, but there exists in the world a tombstone, and it is your tombstone, um, mm. and and we've shed the sort of orthodoxies where every tombstone really just says, you know, like brother or father, you know, year of birth, year of death. We've we've changed that, and actually, everybody before they pass away, one of their responsibilities on Earth is to write their own um, inscription for the tombstone, mm. what would it be? 
what would what would you put on that tombstone? I'm going to give you a second option, and and then you're also allowed to choose both. <laughs> uh, but I've I've seen this really interesting thing that I've seen it actually done with like celebrities sometimes do it. But it's this concept of a, a seven word memoir. I think there's a six word memoir. I, I think there's different ideas, but I'm, I'm going with the seven word memoir right now, which is to sort of sum yourself up in seven words um, or less. Both of these are hard. I know both of these kind of require a reflection, but in the context of this interview, I'm going to ask you kind of to shoot from the heart. You know, obviously you mm. could, you could take hours to really decide what would, what would be on the tombstone or what would be the seven word. Um, mm. But I wonder if you could pick I, one of them. Yeah. I, I think I'll go with the tombstone. I like, um, I re- this goes back to what we we're talking about, ordinary, you know, everyday people and the everydayness of life, unfurling the astounding reality of everyday life, unglamorous, unfamous. I really like reading obituaries for this reason because I think it's one of the like small town paper obituaries in particular. It's one of the places where you get a sense of just how varied um, people's lives are in a really moving way and surprising. Um, and anyway, so for that reason, I think I would, I, I think it's fun. I think, you know, a variation to be about obituary too. a tombstone is so short, but I guess if I had to put, um, let's see if on my tombstone, mm, something I would want to convey, um, Um, I, I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's too corny. I'm, but basically I would, I would put something like he loved sunsets because in the sunset for me is contained all of these things. You have beauty, the beauty of the natural world. You have community because a sunset is this event that's free that everyone can that happens every day that everyone can see and attend to and share together in a kind of shared experience of beauty and awe of 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 having something bigger than ourselves and a sense of the smallness of each of our lives but that small doesn't mean insignificant small just means small and and um and then and then also the way that it keeps going i mean which I think is a nice, what I would want to reference on my tombstone too, that I was one drop in the bucket of humanity and there's many, many more drops to come. And this is one of the things that moves me most is the intergenerational sense of of human, of the human experiment, the human, um, you know, the humanistic timeline of, of the people who come before and the people who come after that we passing on the torch, trying to be better and more humane and more um, alive to each other and to the planet that we inhabit. So that's why I would choose the sunset if that, if that's all right. Yeah. Beautiful. And I'm, I'm glad I asked that question. Uh, I'm really, really moved by that answer. And so I, uh, I want to first and foremost thank you for for joining me um, and for such thought provoking and honest and generous um, responses to my questions. As I said, I I really because of because of your responses, I felt so emboldened to really ask 
just straight from the heart, you know, some challenging questions. And I'm grateful that you gave such, such deep moving answers. Um, so thank you for that. No, thank you. It clearly isn't your first radio. You really, you really got me talking. I didn't, I did, and it was a great, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to reflect. It's not every day that I get a chance to just kind of <laughs> hold forth and ramble and, and reflect on my own life. So I, I appreciate the, your own generosity of, uh, of attention and curiosity and care. And I know it's not, you're not just doing it for me. You're doing it with lots of people. So I, I, I really appreciate that as well. It's been it's been a joy and a privilege for me. For anyone who uh, is listening, I appreciate your generosity in listening to this interview and this conversation, and I hope you find it meaningful um, and that it in some way moves you, opens your heart, changes the way you think about something. As I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, I'm embarked on a project to interview 100 different people, um, all of whom I think have real wisdom to share. And so I hope uh, you will check out more of these interviews um, that are also going to be available online alongside this particular episode. So thank you so much. um, And I'm grateful for your time.